You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2007 film, Meet the Robinsons. So this is an animated film, and we our main character is a young boy named Lewis. Mm-hmm. And we see one of the first shots in the film is he. it's the famous, you know leaving the baby by the orphanage in a little uh, basket. Yeah. That, that scene, the mom let, leaves him over, he's an orphan. Yeah. And now we see him, he's 12 years old, and he is a big science whiz. He is yeah. obsessed with inventing eccentric, new, crazy gadgets. Sometimes they don't really make perfect sense. Yeah. And he also has a roommate named Goob. Yeah, his that's name? his nickname. nickname. Michael Goobian, but everybody just calls him Goob. Yeah. And he's a big sports player, but you can also see the being a roommate with Lewis is sort of driving him crazy. He's getting bags under his eyes. Right. He has trouble sleeping. Right. I think it's affecting his performance in some of the games. Yeah, he plays baseball, and he's worried about it. He complains a few times. He's worried that he's going to sleep through a game because uh, Lewis keeps him up at all hours in the night either helping him with his inventions or he's kind of oblivious to Goob needing sleep and he just works on him. (laughs) Either way, he's not getting a lot of sleep. Lewis is always trying to be an orphan, but there's always these interviews with potential foster parents. Mm -hmm. And he uh, meets one family and he thinks he's going to introduce this... uh, peanut butter invention thing that gives you the right amount of peanut butter and jelly because he says you can never get the portions right so this will get it right of course it ends disastrously with peanut butter and jelly shooting everywhere and the parents leave and he figures out this is the 150 something time that you know he's been yeah i I like that scene because um of course they have to throw in the fact that the uh uh candidate uh, father has a peanut allergy and he starts blowing up that's hilarious. I found that to be just drop dead funny. And he's had many inventions. He has these inventions, but they always just don't quite work. Because then we see him going to a science fair, mm-hmm. and he is something that he thinks could be a possible time machine. I don't think he thinks it's a time machine, though. He thinks it's going to be a kind of a memory dredger. Memory dredger, right? Because he, he wants to. He wants to. See if he can find out something because he is an orphan. He's naturally curious, what? Uh, and, and he wants to find out something about his biological parents. In this case, his mom, because he does know his mom left him on that step. You know, we we saw that that initial uh, scene. But yeah, he's not thinking this thing's a time machine. He just thinks it's some kind of neural scanner. But we we kind of realize as the movie goes on that he had inadvertently created a time machine. Yeah. So because he wants to go back to the the time his mom left him to to the orphanage, he wants to see his mother. Yes. And he thinks it's going to work, but he meets this kid named Wilbur, and Wilbur says, "You know, I'm from the future. You can't do the. You know, there's consequences." And he warns him about Bowler Hat Guy. Yes. 
And bowler hat guy, we see him, very tall, lanky guy, has obviously has a bowler hat. Yeah. And when it looks like he's... Bad teeth. Yeah, demonstrating his invention. <laughs> looks like it might work, but we see bowler hat. He has this detachable little robot thing with the yeah. bowler hat. It screws up his invention. Yeah, and that that's called Doris. That, Doris. Uh, it goes underneath the covering as he's explaining what his science fair project is. And I guess the people that are running the science fair, they're obviously school staff and they're kind of familiar with lewis's uh uh spotty track record with safe um uh, projects so they're, they're telling people to back off get give it room give it room and as he's explaining this thing uh the bowler hat kind of robot doris goes underneath the cover and takes off a couple of screws that are on, on the brace that's holding this thing down to uh, on on the table knowing this this will cause it to malfunction so yes and the bowler hat guys waiting in the wings uh for the inevitable malfunction as well yes, and it, it screws up and of course it causes once again another disaster at the science fair yeah. everything goes crazy this one girl has frogs the frogs go all wild and of yeah. course every science fair has to have some kid with a volcano <laughs> yeah. the volcano shoots everywhere <laughs> yeah. And he is completely devastated. Yes. And then Bowler Hat Guy tries to take that, and he thinks he can fix it and pass yeah. it off as his own idea. Yeah, so we, we now know that this is what he's doing. He is there for some reason uh, to take that device because he knows, having come from the future, that it in fact is a time travel device. And he realizes that if he can take it and uh, pass it off as his own at a, a, a big uh, kind of a pitch meeting at, at some uh, uh, large corporation that uh, he can do something with that. It's not, it's not um, revealed right away, but it's very important to him, right? So what ends up happening is um, um, Lewis doesn't return to the disastrous science fair, he just runs home, and this gives and everybody else leaves the room as well. And this gives him the opportunity to steal that thing, and then he uh, does go ahead and, and take it to the corporation and attempt to sell it. Yep, yeah, and of course that because he doesn't know exactly how to work it, it fails miserably, and they think he's just some crackpot, and they throw him out. Yes, and then meanwhile we meet Wilbur or Lewis, and Wilbur's trying to warn him about you know I'm from the future, but Lewis doesn't believe him. And Wilbur needs Lewis to fix this you know, machine. Yep. And but eventually they wind up that Wilbur has that time machine vehicle, and they escape back. They go to the future, uh, yep. the year of 2037. Yep. And he meets Wilbur's family. They are the Robinsons. And it is a... I'm not going to try and re remember every single family member. No. There's so many. At this point in the movie, uh, I have to, I have to uh, give you a little... Uh, information about what kind of the people probably not interested in this that are listening but uh, the, the state of mind i was in when i was watching this portion of the movie was uh the day before a colonoscopy if anybody knows what that is you have to drink this stuff and it screws up your electrolytes you don't sleep so you're kind of out of it and this part of the movie where he's being introduced to every single member that it got bewildering it actually got a little bit bewildering and i was kind of having a hard time keeping track of people yes me too. Um, so i actually had to go through it and watch it a second time to get straight but um what's kind of really neat about it is you, you meet all these quirky characters and uh 
you can see kind of immediately that he's feeling very kind of uh, like he fits in well with these quirky characters. Yes, they also do wacky, weird inventions like this. Yes. The, the Wilbur's mom. She trains frogs to sing, and they seem yes. like they're uh, Frank Sinatra crooners. Yeah, and it's hilarious because they kind of have the the, the the rhetoric style of Frankie back in the 50s and 60s, and the, the, the frogs are all hanging out, and they use the they use the language that the Rat Pack would have used, and it's pretty darn funny. I, I like that, that scene. Yeah. But then we get more problems because Bowler Hat Guy and Doris... Mm-hmm. are now also in 2013. They're going after Lewis. Yep. And they are trying to get the time machine fixed, and we later figure out who Bowler Hat Guy is. Yep. He is an older version of Goob. Yes. Goob was the... the Devis, he, he, they got too much. He fell asleep during a Little League game. Yeah. The, uh, playing outfield, by the way, where all the bad players are put, right? Yes. So he's way out in the outfield, and he's standing, uh, sleeping standing up, which, yes, it's actually possible, and uh, gets hit in the head, I think, with the, with the fly ball, right? And, of course, loses the game. So we see him back at the uh, orphanage after this occurs, and he's got a black eye, and he's all roughed up, and the, the, his, his team members beat him, up. beat him up because he blew the game. Yes. And then that, he becomes obsessed with that event, caught with all the stress that it caused him. So every time he has an interview with parents, he's always just going on about him not catching the fly ball. Yeah. Like, wow, this is the exact definition of a Jim Rome softball guy. Yes, he yes. Over yes, he does not get over it. Game. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then that sort of drives him crazy. He wants to get back at Lewis. Yeah, he so, blames Lewis for his uh, this being the disastrous turn in his life. And there's that funny scene too, where uh, it's being narrated what happened to the uh, orphanage, right? Uh, it, I forget what point in the film this is, but. Um, we're, we're, we're informed that the orphanage shut down. Everybody left except for Goob. He stays in his room, and you see him kind of a, with a montage kind of growing up into that sinister, sight, snidely whiplash-looking character, totally obsessed with getting Lewis back for what he did to him. Yes, and he also teams up with, by the way, Doris was an invention by Lewis, mm-hmm. and that Lewis discarded it was D-O-R-15. Yes. Called Doris, but Lewis discarded him for some reason. Yeah. And so they both teamed up to get back at him. Yeah, I guess he, he saw something. I forget the details, too. They almost this, this movie almost takes three or four watchings sometimes, I think, to get all the details. But uh, there was something disquieting about Door 15 that he didn't like. It was supposed to be a hat, right, that you could uh, people could wear, and it would be like a... A servant hat for them it would help them do things but apparently it, it, it tries to uh, take control of the humans when he runs his tests of it his you know beta tests and decides all things considered it's best I don't even uh, pursue this one so you see him take it and put it in his big vault of I guess rejected uh, uh, um, inventions right but little do we know that Doris has achieved some sort of uh, uh, self-consciousness and an ability to act autonomously. So Doris escapes. <laughs> and then it's sort of that they 
well, this time Lewis and Wilbur are bonding, especially Lewis feels a bond with this family because they're just like me, but then it's revealed that, oh, he is from the past, you've got to go back, and he feels rejected. Yes. Around this time, the machine gets fixed. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then that's when uh, Bowler Hat Guy and Doris kidnap Lewis. They yeah. take the machine, they get go back in time to his pitch meeting, and this time it works. Yes. And then he, but then little do we know that Doris has been using Goob, uh, Goob this whole time because he wants to enslave humanity. Right. So basically at the end there's a big showdown. Lewis makes everything right, is able to fix everything. And then we reveal, because we, always, we never meet Wilbur's dad, he's always in the background. Yeah. The big twist is Lewis is Wilbur's dad. Yes. And this is his family. Right. So Wilbur meets his older self. Yes, uh, who's named Cornelius, and I'm still not exactly sure why that's the case. But maybe it's a Planet of the Apes reference. Who yeah, who knows? But then, um, so he sees that he's able, and he goes back in time to the part where he pitches. He gets a second chance to pitch his idea. Yeah, and this time it works. But then he gets the promise to go back to the time when he go back in time to the part where his mom abandons him at the orphanage. Yes, and he's about to talk to her but then he says no because i found my family i don't need to do that yeah it's kind of interesting yeah it's a good scene because it's it's a a repeat of the scene at the beginning of the film where you see his mom going up the steps and then placing him down on the porch of the orphanage and then interestingly she doesn't knock on the door right Mm -hmm. and i double check the beginning of the film you don't see who knocks on the door either at the beginning of the film. You see a shot from the inside. You hear the knock. Well, he, she leaves, right, because she hears him watching her, and she thinks, uh-oh, somebody's maybe going to catch me doing this. So she just uh, runs. And then this gives Wilbur a chance to go up those same steps, look down at the basket, and see himself as an infant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he's the one that knocks on the door, right? And you're right. Uh, what kind of uh, initiated all this was him first thinking, well, now I can finally go meet my mom and I'm going to walk up the steps. He almost taps her on the shoulder, but thinks twice. Yeah. And only later does he say it's because I already have a family. Yes. Um, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's also maybe crossed his mind that uh, uh, maybe in doing that, I would I would change the... Uh, 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 train of events in some way that would have untoward consequences. Maybe that crossed yes. his mind too. Yes, and then at the end, yes, that happens. He gets the second chance. He hits it off at the science fair, and then he realizes the two judges yeah. were actually some of the quirky family members. It was yeah. Franny. It's essentially his own mother and dad, right? Yeah. The ones that have adopt him eventually, right? And then they are the grandparents I forget the grandfather's name, but he, for some reason, wears his clothes backwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's him. And then the, the, uh, his, his uh, adoptive uh, mother was Franny. was Franny, who was the judge uh, for the science fair. Right. And then it turns out that uh, Cornelius's wife yeah, in the, the future is the girl with the frogs. And she had been working on those frogs apparently from the science fair on and managed to actually teach them to sing as she said she would. Um, and I didn't catch this the first time I watched it. Um, 
she actually names the frog. One of the frogs is, oh, Frankie, I'm, I'm glad I caught you at the beginning of yes. the film, right? So she's already thinking she's going to turn frogs into Frank Sinatra, yes. even as a kid. And then he also goes to Baseball Diamond, yells, Wilbur, uh, Goob, wake, wake up, up, and he catches the fly ball. <laughs> yeah. he's, now he's adored by his teammates. Yeah, although it's more accurate to describe it is the fly ball just happens to fall into his glove. Yes. Yeah, but so he becomes like, and they don't show too much of him, if I recall correctly. He has a successful career in baseball, right? Isn't that right? I'm not sure if it says, but I think the timeline's been fixed where he doesn't become bowler hat. Yes, that's for sure. Yeah. It's interesting because I did enjoy this movie because when you look at, this is a Disney film. When you yeah. look at Walt Disney himself, he really believed in this idea of the futurism movement. Yeah. It was early, kind of the first half of the 20th, 20th century. Like you saw, like famously New York's World Fair, all these yeah. designs of what the future would like, but from the perspective of yeah. somebody from the 30s or 40s or 50s. Yes. And that, and you can you can see that in the artwork they, they decided to use to portray the future or the positive future at any rate. Yeah. Uh, very much looks Art Deco. Uh, 20s, 30s art style. Uh, and even down to, if you noticed, um, in the uh, uh, a few of the uh, establishing shots and things like that, you could see the lines of aerial cars flying. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very, uh, almost a, what you might call a trope in a lot of uh, movies. And you've, you've seen, you see that going back sometime. Yeah, not even yeah. see a trope in movies, but just, you know, the look at the, the art work. Yep. Of the 40s and 50s, think of Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury. Yep. That was what their idea yep. of the future was. Absolutely. Like. And it was also the, the future of, because like the, one of the quotes they use in the movie is, keep moving forward. Yes. And the end of the movie ends with the title quote of, around here, however, we don't look backwards for very long. We keep moving forward, opening up new doors and doing new things because we're curious and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. And that's, that's from Walt, Walt Disney. Disney. Yep. You know, one other thing about uh, Walt Disney that he, one of his more famous uh, theme park attractions at Disneyland mm-hmm. is Tomorrowland. They would open it in 1955, and it was his version, this futuristic version of the future. And I think over time, that park's been updated over the years to kind of more modern sensibilities. And. It was also made into a movie, I believe, about eight years ago, which mm. was, once again, all about somebody. That movie, I haven't seen it, but I know there's a young girl who is this scientist pursuing the scientific exploration, and she runs into George Clooney, who was this other scientist, and mm-hmm. they get on some sort of adventure. But he's all, he was always kind of about that for seeing that. And one thing I'm thinking of, though, is mm-hmm. this, these scientists, you meet the family, they're incredibly quirky. Obviously, and they invent all these crazy things, but you even see with Lewis, like the damage that it does to the one guy with the peanut allergy. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm thinking of, I, I think I'm obviously I think I'm reading way too much into this, but the I, the dangers of having scientists just unlimited power to do whatever they want, because yeah. uh, I'm think I was thinking of a famous video game called Bioshock, where the main character Andrew Ryan creates this world, you know, underground libertarian paradise where artists and scientists can. Uh, do whatever they want without any government restrictions. Right. And of course, in the game, that leads to dire consequences. Yeah. So it yeah. doesn't show it in this game because the Andrew Ryan was somewhat influenced by Walt Disney mixed with like Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of, it doesn't show this in this movie because it's a kid's movie. They're not going to try to show the dire consequences. Of well, they actually do. Scientific they actually oh, do. Yeah. Doris is, a, is a, a, certainly a, a case in point, 
right? So, yeah, it's a kid's movie, so it's not going to ask you uh, to think very deeply about this, but it's certainly there, you know, and uh, it seems to be one of the things uh, that is a price you pay for uh, the progress that that uh, accrues from scientific research. You are going to get not only, as it were, uh, hits and misses, right, in terms of technology that fails or maybe experimental technology that fails or research that fails but every once in a while you're going to get a a a, 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 a train of research that leads to a result that is at best bivalent and at worst just darn malevolent right and i know uh, a recent uh, uh, probably the most recent case in point would be uh artificial intelligence right and doris is artificial intelligence isn't she or it i should say um so um you know you have you have a robust discussion going on right now about artificial intelligence and uh whether or not it will get to these kind of uh uh get to the point in development where it becomes something like doris or it becomes something like hal 9000 and 2001 space odyssey or Skynet or something like that, right? Um, and the, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be hard to, or it, it looks like it's going to be very hard to, as it were, regulate that, you know, because um, to a certain extent, scientific research uh, has been regulated in the past. The most famous example would be uh, the Manhattan Project. That was quite secret. It was run by the government. It was not run by private enterprise. Um, but uh, a, a lot of the research that does occur is done either in the academic realm, uh, uh, in, in a regulatory sense, independent of government, even though very often it's funded by government, um, or in the private realm. And I think in today's world, m most of that uh, uh interestingly bivalent uh, research is in the private realm uh, so you have to ask in that case uh, would it ever be appropriate if if for some reason um, uh, government entities uh, have good reason to believe that a, a particular line of research is leading in a potentially dangerous direction is it, it would it be appropriate for them to step in in that case to a private entity and tell them you can't you can't do that or if you do pursue it it needs to be only in secret and only with us closely involved um you could you could imagine um alternate histories where maybe something like that could have been like uh, how the atomic bomb was discovered you, you don't know um but it, it could have been and i think we're running into that kind of a situation now as ai develops i, I just saw a story this this morning about I forget the name of the company that invented ChatGPT, but um, there was a big dust up with the guy that was essentially in charge of that company uh, between himself and people that were doing the AI development and research for his company, and apparently they came up with a. Uh, a, a, a version of AI that's significantly different than ChatGBT. 
in, in that, um, I guess apparently what ChatGBT does, uh, apparently what it does is um, when you ask it a question, uh, it uh, essentially scours uh, all publicly available information that it can get at, you know, via the Internet, typically. And then it formulates in natural language an answer to your question. So you get funny results because that's not the way human minds work, right? So, for instance, if you ask ChatGBT to do a math problem, it will come back with uh, a, a, an answer that isn't correct because that's how it, quote, did its research. So you'll get uh, like uh, 2 plus 2 equals 3.925, whatever, for whatever reason, because it, it isn't able to rationally discriminate between uh, pieces of information it's pulled off the internet that are actually just cases of doing that calculation versus others that might be, oh, I don't know, literary references like 1984 when they talk about 2 plus 2 equals 5, right? Yeah. So it just kind of mishmashes its results together and spits something out to you. So you get these weird results. Um, but apparently, uh, uh, this dust up with the between the man who was the head of uh, ChatGBT and his researchers was that uh, his willingness to openly discuss and release a piece of AI that they've developed that acts more when it does mathematical calculations acts much more like a human mind. It, it apparently goes through something that's very, very similar to a reasoning and logic process than just merely running code or scouring the Internet for relevant pieces of uh, uh, archived data and trying to uh, extrapolate results from that. So th they had reason to believe, well, this thing is reasoning more like a human being is reading, a person is reasoning. And it may get to the point where this darn thing becomes massively intelligent in that way. And it might become a danger. So they said, we should not publicly discuss this. And we certainly shouldn't release it yet. He was, of the, this guy that was the head of the company, was of the opposite opinion. So they had a big dust up. He was uh, asked to resign. I think he actually did resign, and but they've come together and, and resolved the differences. He's back at the head of the company now. Just saw this story like two days ago. So notice this is an illustrating point, right? Uh, now that this is public knowledge, oh, we've got this piece of AI that is significantly closer to human reasoning than anything we've ever done before. Uh, now you do have that worry. Well, is there a potential danger in this thing, you know, that all the dystopian sci-fi stories talk about? Um, if so, is that an appropriate place where the government needs to step in and not only regulate it, but uh, uh, similar to the way the Atomic Energy Commission regulates atomic uh, energy and nuclear uh, research? Uh, not only that, but also require secrecy. And you see something like that. Now, now it's my turn to be overthinking this movie. Um, but uh, you see something like that, I think, uh, occurring to Wilbur um, um, after he 
after not only after he invented Doris door, door 15 but certainly as he gets older right and, and you can see uh, that one scene once again where he puts door 15 in that big archive of uh, apparently abandoned inventions um, it's it's apparently the case though that these are it's not it's implied it's certainly not stated but it, it seems to be implied that this storehouse is inventions are inventions Cornelius i.e. Wilbur decided it's better these don't go public right because he is apparently this this genius right and he's single-handedly created this future right because it's only you know what 20 years after his childhood and this future this utopian future uh, complete with the art deco uh, architecture and the flying cars and everything apparently he's almost single-handedly maybe his family is too as a whole i don't know but seems to be single-handedly uh responsible for this but uh, all the while he's also exercised for lack of a better term that since since censors or editors uh exercise in deciding what to release publicly and what not to re release publicly what's kind of implied in this is uh perhaps this is an inevitability as technology advances especially with the use of artificial intelligence that this is going to have to become more and more uh, of of a uh, function in uh, on the part of the inventors and or the government and or academia as they develop these things they're going to have to make judgments as to which ones they should pursue or hide and which ones they should uh, not uh, or not pursue or uh, not release to the public uh, it's kind of interesting I and mean, that that actually uh, this film does a good humorous job of uh, asking that question uh, in a way that's actually a little bit different than 2001 does, but it works. I like it. Yeah, and it's, it is interesting. You talk about it, what we've said before. It feels like the, the thing is look forward, don't get stuck up in the past. But I, when I look at the sort of the ideas presented in the film and the feel of the film, it is. It's the time term is retrofuturistic. Yes, it is. Very much, you say, very 40s and 50s influence. And I will say of this, like they said, Walt, that Walt Disney's views are in this movie. Yeah. And it reminds me, sorry to bring up another video game, but of the uh, Fallout video games, which, you know, it's set in the 2077s or 2100, I think the 2200s. Mm -hmm. But it's still very much 1940s and 50s influence. The ink spots yeah. are the biggest hit band yeah. on the radio stations. That <laughs> That's time. awesome. I, oh, I love that. Yeah. It, it's still kind of that, well, if you're telling us to move forward, it's still you're still stuck in a certain specific yeah. mindset. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that the, 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 the future, uh, as portrayed in the arts, uh, is in a way nostalgic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, even uh, again, we're talking 2001 keeps coming up. E even 2001, yes, uh, it was a product of the 60s, but one of the charms of that film, I think, if that's a proper way to describe that film, is uh, the fact that it is such a 60s product. You know, the, the furniture, the fact that yes. Pan Am is the airline, you know, and, and the, the, the clothing that the characters wear, especially the, uh, the flight attendants with the, that 
kind of goofy headgear on. It's all just wonderfully 60s. Yes, uh, I showed this to a friend of mine, and he was talking about how goofy the chairs looked in the space stations. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. And, you know, uh, this film, I'm I'm thinking the the, uh, future presented, you know, the city, the look of the city is is not only nostalgic, uh, like you said, for the 20s or 30s. I think it's the 20s or 30s is the look here. But it's also nostalgic for earlier uh, cinematic portrayals of the future. I, I, I looked at that city and I thought, wow, that's kind of like Metropolis. And I also thought, oh, wow, that's kind of like Blade Runner. You know, not clearly as dark as Blade yeah, Runner, but but literally. yeah. <laughs> uh, but they got the lines of the cars still going, you know, even, even, even as in Blade Runner. So it's kind of neat. You know, futuristic movies give filmmakers, audiences, and writers a chance to in a way, maybe unintentionally, be nostalgic about the past. Yeah. Blade Runner with its future of 2019. Yeah, right. Exactly right. Yeah, but, you know, and I, I, another, getting back to the, the topic of uh, um, uh, bivalent technology, the thing that this movie... Doesn't quite present as being a case of bivalent technology, one that shouldn't be utilized too frequently, or at least a good case could be made for not utilizing it too frequently, is time travel itself. Uh, if you think about the amount of chaos that time travelers could uh, unintentionally initiate as they go back into the past. I think you could very, very well make a strong case that if indeed time travel is possible, and I kind of doubt it is, I think there's probably a, a lurking logical contradiction in the very idea of it. But suppose it is. Suppose it is. If you have too many people traveling back in time, trying to alter things either for their benefit or for somebody else's benefit, or maybe uh, to harm somebody, um, Hitler before well, you know, a lot of time travel stories kind of assume it's only going to be one time traveler, right? But in this story, we have three, right? We have Goob, we have Mil- uh, uh, Wilbur, and we have uh, his son. What's his Lewis? name? Um, yeah, uh, right. W- Wilbur is Lewis's Lewis. son, right? And then Lewis, right? So that's at least three. And you can see that just having three reeks of a fair amount of chaos. Yes, this is a cartoon. It's meant for kids. They tend to be chaotic anyway. But still, they're, they're wreaking a fair amount of um, chaos. Uh, and they're also pursuing contradictory uh, ends in terms of the futures they're wanting to bring about, right? So if you get too much of that going on, suppose for some reason every household has a time travel device, Right, it's hard. It's it's hard to see how, um, and, and assuming there's only one timeline, this is a big if, right? Assuming there's only one timeline, and you've got multiple people jumping backwards in that timeline to try to fix things the way they want them, you're going to have people with conflicting goals in that regard. So you're going to get either chaos or some kind of weird stasis where events just churn to a halt because contradictions are uh, attempting to take place, as it were. So. Uh, if there, if there is 
a case to be made for some technology simply being too dangerous to have. Well, but that would be one time travel technology. Yet it seems to be freely available in this futuristic world. So I kind of wonder, but he, he should not only have hidden Doris, he probably should have hidden the time travel devices, I'm thinking. It makes me think of that whole thing of, the whole two things about time travel is either A, everything is set in place. If you go back in time, you were always meant to go back in time. Yeah. And you do, like even if, say, you go back in 1920s Germany and kill Hitler before he yeah. formed the Nazi party and came to power... Mm-hmm. Then you, you all you'll always miss, or he'll somehow survive, or you know it was never Hitler; it was somebody else. Yeah, it, it, nothing changes, or it's that thing. If you kill Hitler, then the future will be much better, or it could be even worse because somebody even worse than Hitler took over. Yeah, so it's yeah. Kind of those one or two sections of time travel. Yeah, technology. yeah, and that's that's all more or less assuming uh, one, uh, as it were, one stream of time. Of course, you have to worry about the. the uh, framing device now that's kind of all the rage multiple universes right um i think that probably this is this is a way to render this movie consistent right because you notice he changes the future at one point by simply saying to doris i choose not to invent you i forget the exact and the you kind of see the dystopian world dissolve as he says that and it's being replaced by that futuristic happy world right uh trying to resolve that and explain how that could possibly be all in one timeline will just make your mind fry. Um, But it's easy to kind of explain in in a multiple uh, universe setting. He's just jumped from one universe to another. In fact, anytime you make a choice, according to this view, this is actually a view in quantum mechanics, believe it or not. But every time a choice is made or an event occurs, um, the universe, as it were, kind of splits off in buds, right? So you have you have uh, 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 Wilbur or uh, Lewis or all of them uh, kind of budding off into an alternate universe where the results of that choice play out. But still, the other universe still exists, right? Like- and you're following the characters jumping into the parallel universe. And that's that's how it can make sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast, more podcasts produced by the Radio Stockdale Center, by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their other podcasts, such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, reach episode dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. And for our next show, we will be discussing the 1997 film, Life is Beautiful. So if you don't want to be spoiled for that film, be sure to watch it before the next episode airs. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Thanks so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.